0: Westbrook Health Services has been supporting the surrounding community since 1949 and is known as an agency that is community-focused, people-driven. As one of West Virginia's 13 comprehensive behavioral health centers, Westbrook provides services to eight counties throughout the Mountaineer State and became one of the first comprehensive community behavioral health clinics in West Virginia in 2020. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous help of the Sisters Health Foundation. This year marks 25 years since the foundation awarded its first grant, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Welcome to Studio 2121. Hello, and welcome to Studio 2121 podcast, and I'm Kevin Trippett, CEO of Westbrook, and joining with me today is Mark Drennan, who is the Executive Director of the West Virginia Behavioral Provider Health Association mouthful <laughs> yes it is yeah um, we are recording our eighth podcast um, so for those of you that have enjoyed our podcast so far please like um, the podcast give us a rating please um, don't hesitate to give us some feedback so we can try to make these better um, and if you subscribe to them then when we release the new ones then you will automatically get a notification of that so um, we thank all of you that have listened so far, and, and please, tell your friends about it so we can get the word out. We think mental health is an important topic to talk about, um, and the more we talk about it, the better we are with reducing stigma, so thank you very much for listening. So, so Mark, um, you know, I mentioned that you're with the West Virginia Behavioral Health Providers Association. Can you tell us a little bit about the association? Sure, so
1: the, the West Virginia Behavioral Health Care Providers Association, which is a mouthful, um, is uh, it's an association of behavioral health providers across the state of West Virginia. Um, and we have, uh, you know, roughly about 25 members. We're, we're growing every day. You know, we're, we're almost getting close to 29, uh, give or take. But, um, uh, so it was founded in about 1983. Um, originally, uh, sort of a um, um, Association of the 13 Comprehensive Community ma- Mental Health Centers in West Virginia which were one of those which <laughs> right which Westbrook is one of those and uh, One of our largest ones is, is just survey counties, right? Mm-hmm. so um, And then we've expanded to other licensed behavioral health mm-hmm. providers, so we have a few requirements They have to be have at least uh, 25 uh, full-time equivalent staff they have to um, be a, uh, a licensed behavioral health center or a licensed behavioral health hospital uh, and they have to be a West Virginia Medicaid provider. And uh, so we provide a, a, a range of services for those members including government relations um, and lobbying and um, we have um, a network of, of um uh, committees that meet on a monthly basis and then we meet together monthly as a full association where we bring in representatives from state government and and, uh, and legislature and different things
0: Yeah, you know, I find the association extremely valuable for us I think it's great having that network of peers. Um, I know starting off for me um, when I first got to be the CFO at Westbrook, it was awesome for me to be able to reach out to CFOs at other centers um, and get some advice and and how to do things and um, And then from there we um, got together and worked on how do we allocate funding? I mean the state let us help them with the funding formula so that we felt like it was a fair and um, equitable way of doing that and without the association that wouldn't have been possible so I think that's one of the the hidden benefits are the
1: relationships that, mm-hmm. that have been built, and what I've seen is regionally people getting together, um, like-minded uh, folks that that get together to better serve individuals with behavioral health needs across West Virginia. And I think we've done a really good job, of the association, as far as building uh, relationships with our state partners that uh, you know provide a lot of the funding for some of the the efforts that we're we're rolling out now around substance
0: abuse and. And residential services for those people in need. Yeah and, you know and um, with some of the work that you've done and, and some of the members it seems like we're getting some more interest and in, in right. individuals wanting to join so we, we had a discussion yesterday about that and so we're going to come up with a more formal application process um, that makes sure that they hit all the requirements plus try to learn what their interest is in being with the association. So we'll be rolling that out soon, so it's pretty exciting. One of the things too I'll
1: say uh, is that, um, you know, I always think we we focus on three different disability groups too. So we have individuals that provide mental health services, we have members that provide substance abuse, um, services for intellectual and and developmental disabilities, uh, children's mental health services, and some people provide all of those. Uh, so it's a wide variety of, of individuals, but it seems
0: to work pretty well together. Yep, yeah, definitely. So one of the highlights um, that with the association, is it eight years running now? Eighth annual conference. Rate. Yeah. So you were charged with putting a conference together and um, it's been a valuable um, tool for me. Um, you, you bring in a lot of good guest speakers. Um, again sometimes even members of the association themselves become the speakers on different topics Um, so that's been a lot of fun and um, we just finished one right yeah yeah, we were up at uh, at
1: Stonewall Resort, and uh, they they do a good job taking care of us and making it an affordable package for us, and and we really don't have to. We kind of set that part of it and, and forget about it, and uh, and then we bring in speakers from all across the country, we bring in local folks from West Virginia, but we also go outside of West Virginia and bring bring people in. We got to bring back this year a uh, a good friend of ours, Mike Vini, who came to our first annual conference, and he is a. Uh, He's an individual that um, that has uh, mental health um, uh, conditions and uh, he deals with those through drumming and he learned that at a young age and so he's a professional drummer and he came and uh, talked to us about about his life story and uh, and then we did some drumming <laughs> which was really interesting um, and then we actually brought to get brought a um, an actress um, who uh, was a child actress for a number of years and then uh, she stepped away from that, and now she does. Um, she does mental health speaking engagements, and um, and then how she takes care of herself. You know, it's been it's been tough with um, with COVID over the last few years. You know, in, individuals in in healthcare and in behavioral health, we haven't stopped the whole time. We've just had to continue to work and serve individuals. It's been stressful, I think, on our staff, on leadership, and uh, so we brought in you know Mike and and, and Lisa Jacob. To, uh, to talk to us about taking care of ourselves. And I think that was important.
0: It was. Um, for those of you who don't know, Lisa Jacob um, starred as the oldest daughter in Mrs. Doubtfire from, maybe some of you don't remember the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, but that was the role she played. And she taught us some mindful techniques right in the middle of the conference. And um, I'm still using one of those today yeah. um, on a daily basis. Um, it only takes a few minutes, helps clear your mind um and get you reset so and then she helped um, teach yoga right every morning so i didn't participate because i was out running but i heard that the yoga classes went really well yeah it's 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 not something that i've i've actually
1: had one other time but uh but did it that morning and and i remember the first time i did it was very stressful and i was just pouring you know the sweat it was a lot of work but but the way she did it uh, was actually very relaxing and, and my back always usually you know gives me a problems. But that whole day it was it was very uh, felt felt great. We had another gentleman that came and spoke to us, and uh, on the substance abuse side said that uh, you know he's former law enforcement. DEA, and he said that he's been practicing yoga for a number of years for his back, and, and I can see how mm-hmm. that it was, uh, will be beneficial. I need to make it a practice of my own, own life now, but, uh, right. but it was really good. We had about 25 people that actually participated that morning, got up at 7 a.m. to go and be with her and, and do yoga, and we didn't know if we'd have one or, or, or what, but we were very, very pleased with the, with the participation
0: there. You mentioned a uh, former DEA agent. I found his obsession fascinating. Um, he got into drug trends, and it just blows my mind the things that people do. Um, and he mentioned that there's a new drug, I think it's called ISO, that's even more dangerous than fentanyl, if you can even imagine. And I don't think we've seen that yet in West Virginia, but more than likely it's coming. So it's just something else we need to be prepared for. Um, the other thing I found interesting is um, he his belief, based on his years' of experience and things he's hearing, is that the Mexican cartel is trying to build up meth to the point that where they can run the Colombians completely out of the country with their cocaine. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, but, you know, I'm definitely glad that um, we're able to help individuals both on the prevention side and, and on the treatment side But it was very to me. It was very fascinating hearing what's going on yeah.
1: yeah, he he came and spoke to our substance abuse committee and, and had us all all mesmerized I mean, here's a guy that that, uh, you know worked undercover for the DEA and, uh, and infiltrated uh, biker gangs out in California and then, uh, then he went actually to Thailand and, and worked there undercover. And so he knows, you know, where this stuff is manufactured and the routes that it takes to get, get here to, to, uh,
0: to us in, in West Virginia. Yeah. And some of the stories, I think he told us that he bought drugs off of a um, PTA president. Right. And a pastor as well. Um, yeah. It's just crazy. <laughs> he said you wouldn't, you
1: wouldn't know. You yeah. wouldn't know the the people that are involved in it, and uh, so, you know, he's part of stop. But he was part of stopping the the sort of supply side, and now he's in in uh, since he's retired from that. Now he's educating people on the latest trends uh, yeah. across the country.
0: Yeah, so something else that was really exciting for me with this conference was all of our discussion on CCBHC. Mm -hmm. Um, We've heard the benefits from um, the executive director of the Missouri Mental Health Association. We've heard from the state themselves with the plans on how they're planning on rolling out CCBHC. We also got to listen to a couple of different speakers from the National Council for Mental Wellbeing, which um, the association is a part of. So, uh, so a lot of that CCBHC discussion has come from the advocacy advocacy work that we've done and getting that bill passed this last legislative session, so uh, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit about the work that we did with that bill.
1: Well, you know, we've been working on, you know, in partnership with the National Council for what was formerly behavioral health and now is mental well-being. And they created this model for uh, certified community behavioral health clinics across the United States. Uh, They passed this bill, I think it was in 2014, and uh, it was called the Excellence in Mental Health Act. And what it did was it created eight pilot states to take a look at this model and see if there is, if if they can demonstrate any efficacy in that model. Mm -hmm. And what they found was it's been really successful, and one of those states, uh, Missouri was one of the original states and a good friend of mine, Brett McGinty, he does what I do for, this, for the state of Missouri, uh, was able to come and talk to us about that. Um, what we did in West Virginia through your leadership as the chair of the Legislative Committee, um, we worked uh, with Senator Ryan Weld uh, from the Northern Panhandle and, and many others to create this bipartisan piece of legislation that basically um says to the state of west virginia we need to um, offer a medicaid state plan amendment to make certified community behavioral health clinics in west virginia a permanent reality as you know westbrook is a a federal grantee so you guys have received federal grants along with several of of our other members Um, but that money is going to run out at some point and uh, so we need to have a way to make that permanent what CCBHC does, it puts us on a on a sort of a level playing field with with other healthcare entities um, that have a little bit of different way that they fund those services. You know, right now we're we're based on a fee for service basis. So, what what we think that CCBHC does is it sort of is 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 morally it morally incentivizes the right services for individuals and not just what the most lucrative services are. Exactly. And uh, what we think too is, it's gonna improve our workforce, it's gonna improve the number of evidence-based programs that we're able to offer statewide, and it's gonna really mean a, a, a lot to those people that we serve.
0: Yeah, probably the most exciting part for me is the increase in availability services in rural areas. Mm -hmm. Um, With the eight counties that we serve, um, Wood County is one of the more populated counties in the state, but the surrounding counties aren't so much, and uh, it's hard to have qualified clinicians available in all those counties when you just don't have um, funds to support them. And so this will create stability with that, and and it gives the individuals in those counties access to services they might not normally have. So that's that's real exciting. Um, Creates a lot of stability um, for behavioral health in West Virginia, which everybody knows, um, there's a lot of behavioral health issues um, these days and it's becoming more prevalent. Um, And I think maybe not more prevalent, it's probably not the word, maybe more aware, more awareness. People Mm -hmm. are more willing to get help. So it's a a great time for us to be able to build up um, our professional staff to be able to accommodate that. That with nine eight eight coming into play, it's going to be more readily available for people to seek services. So I think the timing is right um, for us to be prepared to meet the call, so to speak, with, with people in need. So it's real exciting, yeah, very exciting. Um, go ahead. This, well, this, I was <laughs> going
1: to say this yeah. you know we're really proud of the partnership that we have with the state, and uh, been very excited to see the leadership that they've taken. You know the. The, the Justice administration, Secretary Crouch, uh, Commissioner Bean and Commissioner Mullins and, and all those individuals that have been very invested in making this a reality. Um, so what we like to think is is that you know we've got the executive branch on board and we got the legislative mm-hmm. branch on board. And so when you have both of those guys working in tandem saying, look, we need to make, Uh, certified community behavioral health clinics a reality past past you know the legislature you know 134 to nothing yeah so you know that's a statement in Mm -hmm. itself so we're pretty excited you know you and I were on a meeting yesterday two hours and we're meeting every two weeks for two Mm -hmm. hours um, you know going through it methodically to make sure that we get it right we heard uh, from you know Cynthia Parsons with Medicaid yesterday that they're looking at different models and mm-hmm. uh actually taking a look at, at Oklahoma and right. so maybe even folks from Medicaid are going to go to Oklahoma and see how they've made it work and uh, that's something that this is not a state that we're that familiar mm-hmm. with because we've kind of focused on some of those original states in Missouri so it's something we need to go look at too so uh, but I'm glad that they have sort of uh you know owned it mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so they're running with it that's pretty exciting to see
0: one of the things I did hear or, or read about Oklahoma, um, one of their CCBHC's was able to provide law enforcement with iPads. Oh, wow. And what, what the use was when law enforcement was dealing with an individual in the community and they thought maybe the individual is experiencing some mental illness, they would be able to use that iPad to link up with a professional mm-hmm. to do an evaluation on the spot. And then that would help guide them, th- is this person really a threat? Um, are they committing a crime, or is there a behavioral health issue that needs addressed? And it helped link the services right away. So that was something that they were doing in Oklahoma. Well, mm-hmm.
1: you know, you know, and I've told you before, but you know, my, my brother has been in law enforcement for more than 20, mm-hmm. 20 years, probably twenty five yeah. years by now. And uh, and you know, I know when he got into it, you know, he thought, look, I'm going to be mm-hmm. dealing with with murderers and bank robbers and and rapists and right. and, and and what he finds is that he's a lot of times they're dealing with individuals with mental health conditions, domestic violence, um, and uh, substance abuse. So what I think um, CCBHC has demonstrated in other states, I know Missouri, um, 72,000 referrals from law enforcement, and that way it, it, it creates a partnership between law enforcement and behavioral health where they can work together to sort of get people to the right place where they need to be.
0: Yeah you know we've been trying um, several years here to uh, with our engagement with law enforcement I think we've built up some good relationships Um, but there's still more work to be done for sure right so it's it's real exciting but yeah, so the the meetings we're having every two weeks to set CCBHC up in West Virginia um, it's pretty detailed and pretty (laughs) lengthy and it's not CCBHC is not going to be for everybody right Um, there's a lot involved there's a lot of requirements there's a lot of services you have to be able to provide Um, there are some services if you can't provide them you can contract with another entity Um, but it is very exciting that this is going to be in place and that there's going to be centers throughout the state that will in essence be coordinating comprehensive care for individuals in need Mm -hmm. so it's real exciting so that was you know that was our big accomplishments um, from the 2022 legislative session Um, we got 2023 coming up right I know it's only May but as we knew from last year you start early Mm -hmm. Um, I think we started the bill process for CCBHC around this time and it didn't get approved until the last day of session. <laughs> the last day, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> squeaked across. Definitely. So, what are some of the um, items that we're working on um, for this legislative session? Well, you know, one
1: thing um, is, you know, we worked really hard last year on on mental hygiene reform. So, anytime you you make changes to that, you know. We, you get some consensus but you know there are some hiccups there so we've got some fixes to do on, on mental hygiene so we got that, that work to do but uh, you know like I said earlier many of our members provide services to individuals with intellectual disability and the one thing about those services and being residential and being 24/7 services it's very staff heavy and as you know mm-hmm. we're in the midst of a, of a workforce crisis like we've never seen I mean, we have seen it for the last five years coming down the pike. Now other people in other industries are seeing it. So we've got to find a way to get a qualified workforce um, ready and able to serve individuals with intellectual disabilities. You know I'm in this business because someone with an intellectual disability early in my life touched me and, and directed me in this way. And so you know I know that a lot of us have a passion for individuals with uh, with disabilities, making sure that they have the best life and best quality of life, which means the best staff available. And so I think what we're going to have to work on are our rates for those types of, uh, of services. Um, and you know, we're in a good position right now as a state financially, you know, we've, we've got a lot of, of resources, but it's time to really take a hard look at what we're paying our uh, direct care workers in the IDD space in West Virginia. So that's I think that's gonna be a top focus
0: for us. Yeah, really that problem started when the state increased minimum wage. That's right. And I know on surface, um, bumping minimum wage up sounds great. It gets um, peop- more money in people's pockets, but there's um, side effects to that that some people may not understand. Um, You know, we're not McDonald's where if you bump up minimum wage and the expenses start exceeding the revenue, then we can just change the cost on our menu to capture that and cover the expenses. Um, Our revenues are pretty set, um, being mostly Medicaid funded, and the rates are set by the state. So if there's not a corresponding rate increase, then what we've done is we've increased our expenses and we're trying to cover those costs with the same revenue. And so that's when you mentioned five years ago we've been fighting this, we've really been fighting it ever since the minimum wage went up. Um, Unfortunately, Westbrook's probably in one of the worst positions in the state for whatever reason. um, We're struggling to recruit workers. We have a 70, 75% vacancy rate in our IDD group homes. Um, Where our managers are covering shifts, Um, A lot of staff are working a lot of overtime. Um, We're working on adjusting our wages, some, uh, our rates to try to increase, not only retain our staff, but to try to encourage more applicants, but we're getting to the point to where um, we're going to be operating that program at a loss and we're going to have to use um, profit margins from other service lines to um, cover the deficit. Um, if you were in the business world, that's not how you would operate. If you have right. a line that's losing money, then you more likely would drop that line and then put more resources into the line that's making money. Mm-hmm. But that's not how we want to do things. We want to serve everybody. We don't want to drop the line of business because it's losing money. So I think that's why, as you mentioned, it's important for us to get the word out um, that we need to help these employees. It's, it's always been my belief that the work those employees do is extremely important to the community and should be more of a career path versus an entry wage path. Mm -hmm. Um, We're taking care of individuals that can't take care of themselves. That requires a, a, a skilled workforce, a passionate workforce, that really wants to make this their life mission, and if we're not able to pay them to make it their life mission, then you just have constant turnover, mm-hmm. which isn't fair to the clients. It's not fair to a client to get used to an a, an individual taking care of them, and then it's switching on them all the time, right? <clears throat> so, well, you know, you you mentioned a lot of
1: things there, and and you, you know, we raised the minimum wage in West Virginia twenty percent. I think since you know, we've done that and it's been a number of years ago, probably more probably more like seven years ago now. Um, we've probably raised the rates for um, IDD services five or 10%. So you know, that doesn't even account for, you know, the annual inflation, which before recent times was one or 2% a year. So you got 1% or 2% a year, but now we've got, we're in this situation, we've got hyperinflation. So we're looking at 8 to 10% inflation just over the last couple of years. So we're in a position where we've got to get people uh, really to the table there and, and, uh, and, and really look at it. We started off tracking you know the association's workforce uh, about 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, we had uh, about over 14,000 employees as an association across West Virginia. Uh, last year we did a a May study and we were down to 7,700 staff Mm -hmm. and there's a a number of reasons for that Um, but one of them is this workforce crisis that we're in Um, some people say well what what do you think The what's the issue and and part of the issue is generational Mm -hmm. you know if you if you look at the number of, of baby boomers they're a large generation and, and those baby boomers are starting to retire and they're leaving the workforce. And now we've got, um, you know, Generation X, which is a small, uh, it's a smaller population. Boomers decide to have less kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's that that's shown within the workforce where we don't have enough workers to fill some of those spots. And um, so we've got to figure a way to get people into it. You know, we're doing podcasts like this as an association to, uh, to recruit people to come and, and become direct care workers. Um, because it's not a... It's not a dead end job. It's it, it's an entry level job, and that's what people need to look at. It. I'm, I can come. I can work for Westbrook in direct care and residential. I can work my way up into different positions. You know, the president of our association right now, as you know, uh, Dr. Jimmy Byrne, who's the CEO of Autism Services Center in Huntington, started off his career as a direct care worker. Right. And uh, so we need to get people thinking in that in that fashion. We need to be able to reimburse them and. Uh, uh, adequately so that we can get the right people in those
0: positions. Yeah, definitely. We need to get more people in West Virginia too. You're exactly right. We <laughs> you know, need people to come here. I was tempted, I've told some staff this um, at work, when the um, governor of Texas was shipping busfuls of immigrants to Washington DC. <laughs> I was like, maybe I should call him and have him ship a bus full to West Virginia, um, and so we can recruit. Him. I don't know how that would work, and of course we would want those that have passed the, the legal process. But I think there's an opportunity here. Um. Well,
1: I mean, you know, we, we have an HR committee with the association, which I'm pretty uh, actively involved in. It's, it's, a, it's a tough position, you know. Mm-hmm. They're trying to recruit. And, uh, you know, when the war in the Ukraine broke out, we, we reached out to a company that's actually placing uh, Ukrainian immigrants. A lot of them live in the United States now. They're on work visas or student visas, but they can't go home. And uh, so they're placing them in, in positions. So we, we haven't been successful there, but we've got a few um, uh, profiles of individuals, in and yeah. that's we're we're looking outside of what traditional avenues for getting people. And uh, one it could be uh,
0: could be that type of immigration. Yeah, yeah. So what else do we have on the legislative agenda? I think we've talked about. Um, Chapter 20 boards and some of the issues we have with um, the speed of processing licensure. Um, We run into this situation when we hire a therapist who's been licensed um, in Ohio, as an example, Mm -hmm. and we're trying to get the licensing board to um, flip that to West Virginia. Sometimes it takes forever, and so we're paying staff that can't bill yet, Uh, happens with physicians as well. so I think um, before we go to the legislative route, it's on our agenda that we want to just meet with them and, and have some okay. conversations. The, the recent um, reciprocity bill with Ohio and other states, that's going to be pretty exciting um, for therapy. But.
1: Yeah, there was a, uh, I think there's a counseling compact yes, bill um, mm-hmm. that provides licensure reciprocity for the, the number of states mm-hmm. that are participating in the compact. And uh, we've, you know, we, you know, I know the individuals that, that sponsored that, that bill, and I think it could be helpful for us. You know, think of it, in today's day and age, we shouldn't have to wait, and we can't afford to wait to get people um, approved through licensure to be ready to work. Right. If they've if they've got the license, then we need to make that happen instantaneously. We. We've had a problem over a number of years, getting background checks and different things. And then you lose folks. They don't have time in this day and age to wait around and, and you as, a, as an employer don't have time to have them hanging out for six months or three months uh, for a job. When you offer them a the job, you want to be able to start working today. Right. And uh, so we've got to make that happen.
0: Definitely. So another big thing um, that pulls on a lot of heartstrings of people is the children. Um, the number of children going into foster care, the number of children going out of state for services um, is increasing. Um, we are really taking a stance in the state to try to keep everybody in state for services. So that's another big agenda item for us this legislative session. Well, the drug epidemic has certainly um,
1: you know, exacerbated the problem with, um, with kids in, in state custody and foster mm-hmm. care, and, and you know a lot of times some of those things break down. Uh, I've got a meeting upcoming in August with the hospital association, looking at kids that have been placed in emergency rooms and maybe have stayed there for one. I know one case over 170 days. That's awesome. So that's a, that's a, to me that's abuse. Yeah, you know, no kidding. We've we've got to do a better job, and uh, and and we've worked really hard over the last 20 years of recruiting foster to adopt parents, and so we as we've done that, and uh, you know when you've only got. You know, a million and you know, 1.8 million people in the state, um, you don't have that great of a pool. And since we have done a lot of work recruiting foster parents, I think keeps, you, know, you keep um, taking them offline. And so we've got to find a way to better serve kids and families before the breakup happens. And I think we've actually, back to our conference a few years ago, we started bringing those evidence-based practices on how to, to work with children and their families before it gets to a crisis level. So we think that CCBHC too is mm-hmm. going to bring a lot of children services. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's proven in other states to increase uh, services to kids
0: for behavioral health by, um, you know, tenfold. Right. And that's one of the foundations for the services in CCBHC is providing evidence-based practices, which as you know, then that they've been tried and true and tested. And so that's been great. Um, so I don't know if, if you've seen this or not, but I, I looked at it briefly and I don't remember the numbers, but DHHR recently put out a dashboard that shows the number of kids that's in their custody. And it's just astonishing how many kids we have in the state of West Virginia that's uh, under the custody of DHHR.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm hoping that there's ways, and, and maybe even through CCBHC, that we can divert families from having to lose custody of their kids or having to give custody of the kids to the state of West Virginia to raise. You know, the state's not a not a good uh, parent and uh, because you're not supposed to, the state's not supposed to be the parent. You know, the parent's supposed to be it. So we need to provide supports and resources so that people can be the best parents that they can be Um, because right now, frankly, it's, it's a strain on the rest of of the state of West Virginia. You know, we have great foster parents that have dedicated you know their time and efforts Um, but that's a strain Mm -hmm. and we need parents to um, to be able to to, to work with and uh, and and raise their own own kids and families and and I think we can provide some supports to help them with that
0: yeah not only for um, getting services for the kids but parenting classes and giving parents tools and let them um, get some skills that help them address children with behaviors because Unfortunately, we know it's only gonna get worse that we're um, starting to see kids in early elementary schools that um, their brain development was affected due to um, mothers using substances um, during their birth. So um, it's getting more complicated. So we're, we're hopeful that we're able to gear up our services to help assist with that, definitely. Mm-hmm. So Mark, I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you about was. Um, your grant that the association has received to hire um, a couple of therapists so that you can then um, use those therapists to assist providers throughout the state?
1: Yeah, we, uh, we had a creative idea and uh, that is to as an association to hire licensed uh, counselors and, and social workers to work for the association but see clients using telehealth um, at some of our members' locations. So if it would be you know, in one of those areas is Westbrook. You know, we, we were able to, to get, uh, you know, grants from folks that, that supported this area. And, and uh, so we're trying to hire uh, a licensed, independent clinical social worker. Right now we've got somebody part-time that we're getting ready to bring on board. And, uh, and so we were, we were, you know, we're dealing with that workforce crisis as well. So we were not able to get someone with the highest licensure. Um, even though we were offering pretty significant salary for that, so we're going to go back and try to get uh, some graduate um, social workers and some LPCs to come work for us, and uh, and then they'll have a caseload where they might see people in Eastern Panhandle, but they'll be sitting in Charleston. And uh, you know, one of the things about some of the different areas of the state, especially Eastern Panhandle, is they're kind of hung out over Virginia and Maryland, and you know, they've really become a bedroom community for DC is that uh, it's really hard to compete with those other states. So, if we can hire somebody in Charleston and then they can see clients uh, there, we think that's going to be successful. It started because we had out-of-state entities trying to come into West Virginia and offer telehealth services from you know, California and Florida and different places. And, uh, you know, folks they don't know how we are here in West Virginia. You right. know, we want to see people that that know us, and you know, we always always talking about cultural competence. You know, when from the federal government, but you know what that means to me is you got to have people that that know West Virginia can speak our language mm-hmm. and and know the. The, the issues that we deal with on a daily basis. So we want to get people from West Virginia serving West Virginians.
0: Right, you know, and the other important thing is is you want people living in West Virginia to reap the benefits of providing services along with the individuals reaping the benefits of the services received, so. Right. Yeah. Well, Mark has been great. I'm glad yeah, you came okay, down today. Thanks for, for having me. me. Absolutely, and um, we'll do it again sometime. Let's do it again. All right, thanks. <laughs>